could invite you at this point to open to that portion of scripture we read a moment or two ago, Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10, the people's confession of sin. So in the 17th century, in the very, very south of France, just outside the city of Toulouse, a reformed minister, okay, by the name of Jean de Labadie, okay, he preached, get this, a series of 50 consecutive sermons. Some of these sermons were over four hours in length. And most incredibly of all, all of these sermons were preached from the same text. And that text was simply, Repent ye. Repent ye. And although... It's probably fair to say that uh, Mr. Labadee was kind of going overboard a wee bit. We've got to admire um, his priorities, don't we? Because repentance is an essential and a foundational doctrine of the Christian church. You see, repentance is something that's mandatory for salvation. Repentance is mandatory for salvation. Unless we repent in Jesus Christ, we cannot be saved. And it was the first word of Jesus' earthly ministry, wasn't it? The first word, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So it was the first word, but it was also the content of Jesus' ministry. Because Jesus said that he came, his purpose in coming to earth was to call sinners to repentance. So it was this content of Jesus' ministry. It was also, get this, it was also the content of John the Baptist's ministry, wasn't it? Why did he come? Why did he come? He came preaching a baptism of Repentance, so content of Jesus' ministry, content of John the Baptist's ministry, and it was the content of Paul's ministry. Paul tells us at the end of Acts, where's the end of Acts? Acts 26, he tells us that he's been traveling around, preaching in a number of towns, and he says about that, that he preached that people should repent and turn to God. And there, you know, could go on and on and on there. There's lots more examples, but you get the point. The Bible is a book that speaks about repentance. From Genesis through to Revelation, we see that relationship with an almighty and holy God, it is dependent upon our repentance for sin. But that's fine. What does it mean? What does repentance actually mean? What does it look like? 
In your life, what does repentance look like? What does repentance consist of in the life of a believer? Is it just kind of this sort of vague feeling of, of feeling sorry about something? Is that what repentance is? Or is there more to it than that? What is repentance? What is it? Well, just before we consider that and explore it in a wee bit more detail, let's think about a very short preliminary point from Ezra chapter 10. Okay? Let's think about an introductory point. Because we must, must be clear in Ezra chapter 10 that we do not have in this chapter divine license for divorce. We do not have divine license for divorce. Now, we could think that we do, because this is a chapter where we see men and women separate, and separate in in, in great numbers. But this is not about God permitting divorce. You know, the people of God, they send these women away because they are choosing a lesser of two evils. It's a choice, don't they? They can send the women away or they can see the destruction of the holy people of Israel. So let's be clear, just from the the outset, that, you know, Scripture is clear about divorce. It's clear, you know, it's permissible on certain grounds and grounds of adultery or desertion. But the Bible tells us that God hates divorce. Does that sound sound pretty severe? Well, that's Malachi 2.16. God hates divorce. Okay. Let's get into this main theme, and let's look at uh, repentance. Let's consider uh, a few points here about this this rather unusual gathering of the the people of God to confess their sins. And let's think about our first point this evening. Our first point, and that is the nature of repentance. You got that? The nature of repentance. Repentance, And I suppose the question that we're dealing with here in this first point is, you know, what does repentance consist of? What does it involve to be repentant? And let's be ambitious. Let's try and go through quite quickly four sub-points here. So if you're ready, what does repentance consist of? Okay, first thing. In repentance, there must be an acknowledgement of sin. There must be an acknowledgement of sin. And we see that right at the beginning of the section, in verse 2, chapter 10. Because Shechaniah, love Shechaniah, a great man, he stands here and he says, We have been unfaithful to God. Now, if you cast your minds back to last week, you'll remember a quite vivid scene we had of Ezra. Now, Ezra fell to his knees 
And he was ashamed. He was ashamed of the people's sin. He was ashamed of the sin of intermarriage. And he cries out to God in prayer. That was chapter 9. Chapter 10 is different, isn't it? We see something different here. Because now, Ezra's not by himself. Now the people are gathering round him, aren't they? This is a people who are considering and examining their actions. This is a people that are beginning to see the, the error of their ways. And they, because of that, acknowledge their sin before God. And so immediately, just at the outset tonight, we have to apply that to our own lives. We have to ask ourselves, are we a people, are we a people who ponder the sin in our lives? Do we do that? Are we prone to a sort of self-examination? Do we think about our lives? Do we think about our hearts, our motivations? Do we think about our sin? And then do we take that sin and acknowledge it before a holy God? Is that something that we do on a, on a daily basis? Well, that's something that the people of God did here in Ezra chapter 10. You see, J.C. Ryle, I'm sure you've heard of J.C. Ryle. Well, he says, an interesting comment, he says, Blessed are those who are deeply convinced of their own sinfulness in the sight of God. So ask yourself, are we people who are convinced of our sin? Are we examining our sin? And are we acknowledging that before God? Acknowledge our sin. Okay, second sub-point. So there must be an acknowledgement. Secondly, there must also be sincerity. Okay, sincerity in repentance. And that really is surely the kind of overarching theme of chapter 9 and chapter 10 in Israel. These people are serious and sincere <coughs> about their sin. You know, for example, think about Ezra himself in verse 6 here. So after, after he's thought about this situation, and after he has put his plan into action, what does he do? Ezra takes a step back, doesn't he? He withdraws from the temple, and he goes for a time of fasting and mourning. Okay, And then again, cast your mind back to what we looked at last week. Remember what Ezra was doing? He was pulling out the hair of his beard and pulling out the, the hair on the top of his head. Now, why was he doing that? Because those were symbolic actions of mourning. Ezra was a man who couldn't be any more sincere and contrite. He was a man who was grieving over sin. But it's not just him in chapter 10. It's all the people here. We learn in this passage later on that these were a people who were, what's the word? Greatly distressed. 
because of the occasion and because of the rain. They were a people who cried out in unison, in agreement because of the somber repercussions of their actions. What we've got is a sincere and contrite community. So again, let's take that, that sincerity, and let's apply it to ourselves. It has to be a necessary part of our repentance. We've got to take sin seriously. Now, does repentance mark your prayer life? Again, on a daily basis, are you praying in repentance? Are you doing that? See, the danger, the temptation is that we kind of fall back into formulaic expressions of for, when we ask for forgiveness. That shouldn't be us. We should be weeping over our sin. We should be crying that we have offended a holy God. Psalm 51. It says the sacrifices. Listen to this. The sacrifices of God, so the things that God finds pleasing, are a broken and a contrite heart. So we must pray that we take sin seriously, that we hate sin, that we loathe sin, and that because of that, we are sincere in our repentance. So, acknowledgement, yeah? And then, what was the second one? Sincerity. Okay, third one is in repentance, there must also be confession. Confession. So, 1996 was the year that Susan Sarandon, she won an Oscar for, what would it be? It would have been Best Supporting Actress. And she won it uh, for her role in a Tim Robbins film which was called Dead Man Walking. Dead Man Walking. And it's a fascinating film. And it's the story of a nun who befriends and helps this man who's on death row. And the supposed really high point of the film is where this nun gets the murderer to accept responsibility for he's done. And, and that is seen by the film as the guy's redemption. You know, the film portrays it that he is spiritually healed because he has taken responsibility for his actions. Now, that's fine and it's a good film and everything. But that's not repentance, is it? That is not true and proper repentance because for repentance to be real, there must be confession of sin before God. Must there? It must be confession of sin before God. It's much more than taking responsibility. And we see that in verse 11 here. Because Ezra, it's Ezra's turn to now stand before the people. And he says to them, this whole gathering, the crowd, now make confession 
to the Lord. Make confession to the God of your fathers. See, repentance isn't that vague feeling of guilt. It's not feeling sorry for yourself. It's not feeling sorry about anything you've done. There's more to it than that. It's not about simply regret. Repentance must involve confession of sin and confession of sin before a holy and almighty and a sovereign God. Because you see, confession is a type of worship. It's a type of worship. See, the words in in verse 11, that phrase that Ezra says, he says, make confession. Well, those words could be translated, give praise. You see, by confessing our sins to God, we're acknowledging that he is supreme. By confessing our sins, we're acknowledging that he is, is holy. By confessing our sin, we are acknowledging that he is ultimately the person that we have offended. There must be confession before God. And then lastly on this, repentance must involve a turning away from sin. You get that? Repentance must involve a turning away from sin. So what do you think of this chapter, folks? It's quite a, it's quite a dramatic chapter, isn't it? And I think it's one of the most sort of striking examples in the Bible of, yeah, how seriously God takes sin. But it's also surely one of the most vivid portions of Scripture when we consider how far we have to turn away from sin. Now, these people, they sent, they sent their wives away. Surely that for us is an example of just how much and how far we should shun sin, how we should turn away from it, how we should take sin and, 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 and throw it out of our lives. Now that is a very, very difficult thing to do. To identify sin, to identify the wickedness in our hearts, and to turn away from it. That is difficult because sometimes it involves cutting things out of our lives. Sometimes turning away from sin involves cutting people out of our lives. And that is very, very difficult to do. But we need to know what Shechaniah says to Ezra. There's Shechaniah appearing again. Because he stands before Ezra and he says to him, just before Ezra's about to turn this community away from sin, He says to him, Ezra, take 
courage and do it. Take courage and do it. Friends, we've got to be people who take courage. We've got to be brave. And we have to turn away from the sin in our lives. So the nature of repentance. Okay, let's move on. Let's consider now the scene of judgment. The scene of judgment. So folks, if you have uh, (coughs) ever had the opportunity to sit on jury duty, you ever done that? Hopefully it was an interesting case, because it can be a pretty dull thing to do, but not if it's an interesting case. And if you are a fan of a courtroom TV dramas, then you'll know that it can be sometimes very interesting to to see a courtroom in full swing. You know, to see all these procedures that that the lawyers have to do. To see the lawyers dressed up in their full garb and going at it, hammer and tongue, and to see the respect that is usually or sometimes paid uh, to, to the judge... And there's something of that sort of scene in Ezra chapter 10. Because there's a legal process here. Right about, you know, verses 12 to 14. We've got legal proceedings here. Proceedings that the people of God have to go through in order to have their sin dealt with. And we see a number of interesting details about this legal process in Ezra 10. Firstly, consider here the universality of accountability here. There is universality of accountability. You know, the fact that everyone is called to account in this, aren't they? Every single man in this community who has married a foreign woman, every single one of them is called to account. Verse 14, let everyone, everyone who has married a foreign woman come at a set time. So there's a universality of accountability. Second thing, look at the representation that the people need in the courtroom here. Look at that. Because of the scale of the sin. Verse 13. It ends, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for us. You see, there's just so many of these people. You know, there's so many people have sinned. So great was their sin. They're saying, we can't get through this. They're all standing outside in the rain. Their sin was too great. They needed representation. And then the third detail. Look at the consequences here that the people will face if they don't have their sin dealt with. The consequences, if they don't take their sin seriously. Did you see it? You know, if they try and duck out of uh, these legal proceedings... They will lose their property rights. That's what it says. It says that they will be excluded from the people of God. And then worst of all, the final consequence, verse 14, they're going to face the wrath and the anger of God. 
you see it? This is a legal scene. This is a dramatic courtroom drama. And surely when you're reading that, are you not thinking about the final and climactic judgment day, the final scene, that final courtroom legal process that we've gone through at the end of time? And friends, do you ever think about that judgment? Do you think about judgment day? Is that something that shapes the way that you act? Is it something that shapes the way that you speak to people? The way that you speak to people about Jesus Christ? We well, see on that day, just, just the same as in Ezra here, there will be universal accountability. We will all, every one of us, stand before the judgment seat of God. Universal accountability. There will be also, just like in Ezra, there will be a requirement of representation. There will be. So great is our sin. And then on that day, the day of judgment, just as in Ezra, the consequences for those who have not had their sin dealt with, the consequences of those who have not been defended by Jesus Christ, they will be the same. Because they will lose their property rights to their father's house. They will be excluded from the people of God. And worst of all, they will face the wrath and anger of God at sin. Friends, that day is a terrible thought in many ways. And surely it should prompt us to repentance for our sin. Okay, let's, let's conclude tonight by considering a third thing from this passage in Ezra. Okay, and that is the consequences of repentance. The consequences of repentance. Now people, when I was considering moving down to London when I was moving down and speaking to people about it they said London's great but it's a nightmare to drive around and uh, that might be the case but in my limited experience the most difficult part of London to navigate is actually the pedestrianised area of Covent Garden because what usually happens is that you are wandering quite freely through Covent Garden, then suddenly you find your path blocked by a huge crowd that have gathered around one of the many street performers that kind of litter the, the pavements of Covent Garden. And there's a similar type of thing going on here in chapter 10, isn't there? Because consider, consider when... It is 
that this repentance begins. How does this repentance start here? Well, look right back to verse 1. Opening verse of the chapter. Read this. Okay? While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down, a large crowd gathered round him. And then skip back, either in your Bibles or in your mind, to Ezra chapter 9, what we looked at last week. What do we read there? Verse 3 of chapter 9. Ezra says there, I pulled the hair from my head, my beard, and I sat down appalled. Then, everyone who trembled at the words of God, what did they do? They gathered round me. Do you, see, do you see what's happening here? Do you see the point? Ezra bows, not in performance, but in sincerity. He repents. And it awakens something in these people. And they, in turn, fall to their knees. You see, there is, friends, a real attractiveness holiness. There is an attractiveness to repentance. And that's why this doctrine is so absolutely crucial to the Christian church. Because if we are living as we should, you know, if we are living with sincere repentance as a kind of hallmark of our lives, then that will be attractive to other people. Because hear this, godliness is infectious. It is. Holiness is alluring. Now, we hear all the time, we we are guilty of it as well. We moan about the UK. We moan about the Western world and we say, this is a spiritual desert. It is a spiritually desolate place. It is an absolute spiritual wilderness. That might be true. But consider this chapter. Here, one man's spiritual vigor. One man's spiritual vigor. What does it lead to? It leads to an entire nation bowing before God in repentance. Surely that should prompt us. Surely that should encourage us to repentance. It should encourage us to live seeking holiness. And then we close tonight. And we close with just one word. One word. And it's that man Shechaniah Again, Because in amongst all of this, and in amongst all of this weeping and wailing and crying over sin, what does Sheikh and I say? He says, in spite of our sin, there is still hope. There is still 
still hope. Friends, surely that is the, the spur to us becoming sincere in our repentance. Because of Jesus Christ, you know, because of his atonement for sin, because of Calvary. We have hope. We have sure hope that our sin will be, can be forgiven. You see, yeah, there is a judgment coming. We've seen that throughout today, haven't we? And there is no escaping that. But if you are one sat here tonight who has repented, if you are one who is bowed before the Lord God, then through Jesus Christ, on that day of judgment, you're going to be declared righteous. You are going to be declared innocent, a child of God. And then you are going to be ushered into your father's house. Isn't that amazing? So yeah, folks, we should be crying and we should be weeping and we should be wailing over our sin. But we should also be like Shechaniah here. And we should not lose sight of the hope that is ours. The hope that is ours. All because of the cross. All because of our King. The hope that is ours. All because the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.